Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today we'll be speaking with Brian Hyland. He's the Associate Curator of Manuscripts at the Museum of the Bible, where he was responsible for the new Shroud exhibit at the museum. But before we get started, I wanted to tell a short story. I was just in Washington, D.C. a week and a half ago and visited uh, the Museum of the Bible where the Shroud exhibit was launched. It is a fantastic exhibit. I was most impressed with a linen reproduction of the Shroud, and it is just fascinating to see. All of the image and the bloodstains are represented in a 14 foot long by four foot high linen cloth. As part of the launch as well, Russ Brialt, Andrew Casper, Cheryl White, Barry Schwartz, Father Spitzer, and of course, Brian Hyland uh, spoke and gave their remarks about the Shroud and about the exhibit. Each of them spoke on topics from the 1978 STIRP project to the image formation mechanism to Jesus as artwork and to the Shroud being a piece of art. Of course, not being a piece of art from the hand of man, but being a piece of art from the hand of God. If you get a chance, definitely plan a trip to Washington, D.C. and visit the Shroud exhibit at the Museum of the Bible before July of this year, before it's, uh, before it's gone. With that, let me introduce Brian Hyland. Brian is the Associate Curator of Manuscripts at Museum of the Bible, where he researches the museum's medieval and ancient manuscripts. Brian holds an MA in Ancient History from the University of Chicago and a BA in History from the University of Maryland, College Park. He has also studied classics at Cornell University and Papyrology at the Institut für Papyrologie Ruprecht Karls Universität in Heidelberg, Germany. For 30 years, Brian taught Latin, German, social studies, and mythology at Seton Catholic Central High School in Binghamton, New York. He has also taught Greek and Roman history at the University of Illinois, Chicago, medieval history for the University of Maryland's European Extension Division, and Latin at Binghamton University. Brian is a veteran performer who plays traditional Irish music on penny whistle, flute, English and Anglo concertinas, button and piano accordions, harmonica, bodron, and the bones. Fantastic stuff. Brian, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Guy. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm very impressed with your background. As we were talking before the call, uh, we were at University of Chicago uh, about the same time, maybe a, a little bit of a overlap, maybe not. And then also we were both in Germany. So uh, kind of an interesting overlap of backgrounds. So uh, why don't we get started? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of your backstory on how you came to the Museum of the Bible? Well, the story really begins uh, with my experience at uh, Chicago and Heidelberg. Uh, I had uh, finished all my coursework for uh, for a PhD uh, from Chicago, and uh, I had won a a, a stipend, uh, a 
to go and study at uh, the University of Heidelberg and study papyrology there. And while I was in Heidelberg, I was taking seminars and one of the uh, fellow uh, students in the seminar was a guy by the name of David Trobisch. So I had a bad 48 hours where all my funding ran out and all my back, <laughs> all my backup plans did. So I ended up coming back to the States with my family. And uh, when we got back, I needed some way to support uh, the family. We'd gone over to Germany with two kids and came back with three. <laughs> and so uh, I ended up teaching at the, the Catholic high school in Binghamton, New York, and doing all those things, plus coaching as well. And then uh, around 2009, I, I had been in touch with David, but kind of uh, lost touch for a while. But I got back in touch with him in 2009, and he was updating me with what he was doing. And then in September of uh, 2015, I got this very cryptic email from him that literally said the following. Would you ever consider becoming the curator for manuscripts and papyri at Museum of the Bible. That was it. It was it was a Saturday morning. I was getting up. I, my cross-country team had a meet that day, and I sent him the response saying I, I would need more information. But all the way to the meet, I was going, oh, wow, you know, what, what would this entail? You know, I've, I've been teaching high school for all these years, all of a sudden getting back into a more academic uh, pursuit. Uh, and my girls team especially ran well that day and <laughs> I, I came back the whole time said, nah i can't give this up i can't do that uh, uh but david knew uh how to bait the hook he sent me a, a list of the uh the manuscripts that we had in our collection uh on in a spreadsheet on uh, the following monday and yeah that's that started everything and so uh, in December 2015, I flew out to Oklahoma City, which is where the uh, headquarters was at that time. And I uh, was given an offer and I had till the end of the year to make up my mind. Uh, basically from September to uh, I, when I finally made up my mind, it was it was almost like being schizophrenic. <laughs> I, had, I, I said, yes, no, yes, no. Uh, but I finally uh, thought, you know, hey, uh, who knows? Uh, if I turn this down, you know, I'll spend the rest of my life wondering what if. Uh, so I took a leap of faith. And, uh, you know, I had already figured out when I was going to reti retire from teaching. It would have been 2020, the COVID year. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, God threw me a, a curveball and all of a sudden this this opened up. Uh, so in uh, June of 2016, we had our graduation on Friday night. Grades were due Monday and on Tuesday, my wife and I uh, set uh, set our sights on Oklahoma City. And uh, we headed west, started working for the uh, museum there. I worked uh, there on a bunch of different projects uh, until they decided that they really needed me here uh, in Washington, D.C. So in uh, December of, or excuse me, in um, March, no, February of 2020, I, uh, I, I was transferred here and I arrived here uh, 
and worked in the office two weeks and then COVID shut everything down. <laughs> so, so you're so, the one that's responsible for that. <laughs> that's a, a, you know, I don't want that word getting out there. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, that brought me here. Uh, and for the last couple of years, I've been working on the, this, uh, this project for uh, the, the Shroud. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, were there uh, what other uh, kind of really interesting projects did you work on? And then we'll talk about the Shroud project. Well, I find one of the main things that we do is that we work on the provenance of our uh, artifacts, and so I've done a lot of provenance research, and uh, I find I find all kinds of interesting stories. Uh, it, I'm always drawn to the history and the the personal history of things. So. For example, we have this beautiful manuscript, which is actually two manuscripts, a, uh, a book of hours and a Psalter that are bound together that were uh, produced in the 14th century. Uh, and uh, they belonged to uh, Elizabeth de Boone, who was a, uh, an English noblewoman. Her husband, uh, William, was the grandson of Edward I and the nephew of Edward II. And their, their uh, granddaughter actually married Henry Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV. Mm -hmm. And so they're uh, the great-grandparents of Henry V. And all subsequent monarchs of England uh, basically trace back to, to that point. So they are very influential in history. So there's this beautiful manuscript, beautiful illuminations in it. But in the Psalter portion, there's all this writing between the lines and in the margins uh, on the first 10 pages of it or so. And so I was kind of drawn to that. And there was a question asked, well, what relationship does this have to the uh, the text? And can it give us an idea of how the, uh, the Boone family used this text? And I said, yeah, yeah, it, it has nothing to do with the Boones <laughs> because the, the, the writing was 16th century not uh not 14th century so a couple hundred years later people were uh were writing in the margins and when i did my research one of the strangest things that i found was i could figure out uh after being able to decipher what it was saying and then putting that through um through google search i was able to come up with the fact that these were all quotes or paraphrases from a commentary on the Psalter that was actually printed <laughs> from the 16th century from, in 1542 uh, by a man by the name of Marcantonio Flaminio, who was a, uh, he was in the circle of uh, Reginald Pole, who was a, a, a Catholic Cardinal, and he became Queen Mary's Archbishop of Canterbury. So. I was able to locate who it was, and then that puts it all into the context of the English Reformation, which makes it very, very interesting, uh, interesting uh, piece of work. So that was one. Uh, a quick story about another. We have this uh, two-volume uh, Greek uh, gospel manuscript. Uh, it's called the Usher Gospels because in the 17th century, it belonged to James Usher, uh, who uh, famously calculated the age of the universe using uh, the Bible and King's lists and things like that. 
So when he died, his daughter gave this to uh, the uh, Trinity College Library. And it stayed there for about a half a century. And then in uh, 1707, a guy by the name of Richard Bulkley, who's a scholar, checked it out to do some research on it. And he never returned it. (laughs) (laughs) He died uh, and it got caught up with all of his possessions, entered the market, and it finally finally came into the uh, possession of the uh, family of the Earls of, of Moira. Uh, the second of whom, uh, Lord Rawdon, uh, actually was a British army officer who served in the Revolutionary War all the way from Bunker Hill to South Carolina. And mm. So from uh, 1775 to uh, 1781. Now, the, the thing that I found so interesting about this, there's a great painting by John Trumbull uh, of the Battle of Bunker's Hill, and it's the deaths of General Warren in the foreground. But you can see Rawdon leading the final charge up the hill. He was a very brave officer and earned uh, praise from uh, General Cornwallis for uh, actually winning the battle for the British. But if you look at the painting, he's leading the charge and he's holding the British flag. Off to the left, there's all this gunfire that's going on. And what's going on in it is that a uh, unit of Massachusetts uh, militia were covering the retreat of the Americans. And the one of the officers in there was a guy by the name of Jedediah Thayer, who is my wife Peggy's five times great grandfather <laughs> so when i found that out i just said to her hey your your ancestor was shooting at the owner of my book <laughs> that's that's just not right <laughs> how funny how funny so yeah. you, you you can find all kinds of uh, all kinds of interesting stories uh, like that yeah it's amazing how they're uh, connected the one thing that i uh, get a kick out of is uh, now, I, with papyrus, a little different, uh, you know, but with parchment is, you know, that parchment is the, from the skin, you know, either of a sheep mm-hmm. or, a, you know, a young cow or wherever. And uh, what if you are going to reproduce a whole Bible with all of those pages is how many animals you have to actually need to produce that one, just that one book. Absolutely. There was uh, a scholarly study done uh, trying to estimate the number of animals that were slaughtered uh, to uh, make all these manuscript books uh, from the Middle Ages, and it's in the tens of millions. <laughs> so, so it's it's, uh, uh, it's kind of like then the uh, the animals that get uh, uh, slaughtered and sacrificed for the early Israelites. Then <laughs> it's in the million. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That just uh, I just find that astounding how much. But uh, wow, that's really interesting how you're actually connected to that book. And so, do you think he had that book here in the U.S. when he was here, or did he have it with him? Uh, not likely, because uh, it was his father who uh, was the one who uh, first purchased it, and then he inherited it from him. Uh, He didn't actually have the title of uh, the Earl of Moira uh, until, oh, uh, a few years after the American Revolution. This guy, he actually, Lord Rawdon went on and uh, became the, uh, actually the uh, 
governor of India for the uh, British East India Company. And uh, while he was there as the, the, uh, the viceroy, uh, they greatly expanded control of northern India up the uh, trunk road and all. He also commissioned uh, James Raffles, who uh, who uh, purchased the island of Singapore. So mm-hmm. a, a major British imperialist uh, whose work, his life work affected the lives of millions of people on this book. Wow. Well, I've been to the Raffles Hotel in uh, in, in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, uh, just curious, uh, when he purchased that book, uh, how much do you think he paid for it? Kind of in in today's dollars. Oh, I have no idea. Uh, the thing is, I don't have the uh, the catalog uh, the, for for the sale. Uh, I do know that uh, rare books. Uh, in the 18th century, they were not selling for huge prices uh, in uh, what we would think. They were selling for maybe 10 pounds to 200 pounds or something like that, which in the 18th century, of course, would translate into a lot of money today. But uh, it's really hard to say. Mm, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, even just having a book, uh, any book, but uh, certainly mm. the Bible and, and what have you, and having had it. Um, I guess it would have been, is it hand printed then, or hand, I mean, hand transcribed? Hand, handwritten, yes. It's written, yeah, hand in, written. It's written in a, a very, very fine, uh, small, uh, minuscule cursive hand. Uh, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful book. Mm. Yeah, and how long do you think that uh, that scribe then would have taken to have written that book out? <laughs> years, uh, absolutely really? years. Um, it's... Typically, uh, something like that, and this is and this is just the four gospels. Uh, to get it right, you have to plan out every page in advance. You have to lay out the page. Uh, you have to rule the page, uh, and that all adds to time. And then you have to go back and you have to put in uh, initials and uh, any decorations, uh, such as uh, the miniatures. This has miniatures of the evangelists, uh, and then. Uh, it has to be bound. So you, know, mm-hmm. you put the whole thing together. It's it's going to take uh, at least a year to two years. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It's uh, it's fascinating that whole process. And and nowadays, I mean, even the transition to the Gutenberg Bible, which you have the you know a, a, a replica press at the at the museum. Uh, I just find it fascinating. And even there, the amount of time and the challenge it it, it is to actually set all the type, you know, and not even writing it out, but actually to set the type and get that all right. It's just a fascinating process how that all uh, comes together. Yes, and uh, it, and that technology basically carried down uh, into our lifetime uh, before they uh, started to get the, the more advanced ways of making uh, the typesetting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, anyway, let's uh, let's move on to the shroud because that's uh, uh, certainly uh, you know, a, uh, an enormous project. So tell us how that uh, project came about. Well, it, it actually started uh, in about 2018 when uh, a group of people, uh, I believe uh, Russ Briault was one of them and uh, uh, Myra Adams and uh, probably Cheryl White as well, uh, began uh, a series of talks with uh, leadership here at the museum about the idea of, of having this uh, exhibit. Uh, and it, we had to get 
funding for it. And when an anonymous donor uh, uh, appeared, uh, then we could actually uh, get everything into the works. Uh, I was assigned as the curator uh, for this uh, in October of 2019. So uh, the entire time from when I started working on it to when it opened uh, was about 28 months. Uh, so about as long as it takes to make one of those manuscript Bibles. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we, uh, it, it, the, the process was, uh, I had to I do an awful lot of research. Uh, it was like being in grad school again. Um, but as it was going on, of course, uh, COVID was a big issue because all the libraries were closed. And so I, everything I had to do, I had to do online. I even tried to buy uh, uh, a couple of books from uh, some foreign uh, printers and their offices were closed for COVID too. So I couldn't, e I couldn't even buy books from, the, from them, even at exorbitant prices, I couldn't do it. <laughs> but um, so, I came out here in um, January 2020 uh, for the conference that kicked off the official uh, go going. And uh, it's at that point that I met with uh, the person who was the exhibition uh, project director, uh, uh, developer, uh, Christy Walliver. And it was great because she had a lot of experience uh, developing exhibits uh, and I had experience in researching. So the two of us worked very well together and uh, worked out a whole system of, uh, she would give me deadlines when I needed to have things uh, written, I'd send them to her. Uh, she would have suggested edits, we'd send them back and forth. And after we were finally satisfied with what it said, then it went to our editorial staff. Uh, and then from there, it went up the line all the way up to Jeff Cloa, the uh, chief curatorial officer. So everybody had comments and so uh, you know you get a lot of uh, feedback along the way and you got to fix this you got to fix that etc so it was uh, it, it was uh, just coming up with it was uh, one whole uh, part of it but as you know when you look at it uh, I mean it's it's the exhibit has a beautiful design, and uh, we've got all of this, uh, all of this high-tech interactive uh, element as well. So that represents working, uh, our team working with a lot of other teams within the museum. Uh, we worked with our creative uh, team uh, who developed uh, a lot of the look of uh, the uh, interactives and all. Uh, we worked with, of course, our software development team who, uh, who made some of the interactives. Uh, we worked with the, um, we had an outside design firm, Roto, in, uh, from Dublin, Ohio. And they, they kind of came up with uh, things that in many ways changed uh, the exhibit. Um, I had been thinking of it in very linear terms, and I think we all had here, but they suggested that more open floor plan that uh, we eventually settled on. And that really opens it up and turns the whole focus onto the shroud itself. Uh, it doesn't, um, it doesn't, you know, bury it because originally, if it had been linear, uh, it, the shroud would have been all the way at the back of the, the yeah. of the gallery. So uh, this uh, took many months and lots of meetings, uh, lots of laughs, and uh, 
it, it was wonderful working with uh, the creative people that we have here. And then, you know, there's the logistics people as well, our registrars. They had to, uh, we had to set up all the loans for things that we were going to uh, do. And then they had to uh, see to it that everything was going to be there. And all of this was uh, on the deadline of opening in February 2021. And then in December of uh, 2020, uh, it became clear that COVID was going to push it back. So we decided to push it back a full year. And in the end, that at, everything worked to to the the benefit of the of the exhibit because we were able to uh, work on different things, make sure that uh, that we got everything looking just right. Uh, we had plenty of time for the installation of the exhibit, plenty of time to test all the uh, interactives uh, and all. So, uh, all in all, uh, there was something like. Uh, in from the museum and uh, about 23 different people who had major roles in putting mm -hmm. this together plus a whole bunch of uh, people kind of incidentally coming and going uh, on it uh, so it was it was a huge project yeah well and it uh, i think it really paid off you've got some phenomenal uh things in there you i mean the whole history and and the uh, and what have you, and then um, I, like I mentioned, I think I was most impressed with the, the linen replica of the shroud, and just seeing it laid out on it's on the wall, and you can just sit and 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 look at it, and um, I I don't know, I was mesmerized, uh, I was mesmerized by that. Well, a funny thing, when uh, a person that I gave a tour to just uh, Monday morning, uh, she said that she had actually uh, been to Turin to see the shroud. And uh, as you know, whenever the shroud is on uh, public display, you're going to get huge crowds every single day. Uh, the statistic that I find mind-boggling is that in uh, 1978, uh, 150,000 people saw it each day. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and that really hasn't changed much in, uh, in any of the subsequent extensions. But she said that uh, in 2000, she had a, uh, a chance to see it. And they were back from the shroud about, uh, about the distance uh, from our replica to that, that bench uh, mm -hmm. where, you, where you could actually sit. And she said that they were actually kind of on a conveyor belt. <laughs> and so you, you stand there and it kind of moves you right past. And and so you just, you know, you see it as much as you can and then you have to move on. Uh, whereas what we have there, uh, you can get up very close and really examine it and see the... Uh, just see see the detail uh, in it. You can see the 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 way in which it was made uh, and uh, the the image itself. You know, zoom in on areas and then stand back because, uh, as uh, Andrew Casper was saying in his uh, his talk on February twenty third, that uh, it got a lot of people kind of described it almost as an abstract sketch because when you're in close you can't really take it all in uh, you have to get back from it to, to really see it so here you have the advantage of being able to do that up close or back a ways and you can stay there as long as you want uh, you know until we get to the point where there are 150,000 people are coming through every day <laughs> then we'll have then we'll have to do something about it but right <laughs> but right now uh, it's uh, you've it's plenty of time to see it yeah. and in, incidentally uh, I mean 
uh, it's all the way through the spring and uh, into into the summer. I, it ends uh, July 31st. So I mean, there's a lot of chance for people to come to see it and really take their time and and look at it and and absorb the message of what what that image means. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um, uh, there's and the, there's definitely the message side, and then there's kind of the the physical side of you know there is the image and and uh, uh, you know and the suffering that he went through. Oh, all of those those whip marks, and then the uh, you know the, the the nails and the spikes through his ankles and his wrists. It's uh, it's incredible. My wife and I, we we sat there during the uh, you know the launch, and uh, we were probably there 20 minutes and just talking about you know each of the different things that you can see on there. So you have the image, and then you have uh, you know the blood stains, and you have then you know the burn marks, uh, and then you also have you know potentially blood, not blood, uh, wine stains and wax stains and little droplets, droplets here and there. It's it is just absolutely fascinating. And uh, you know, the, when you look at that and you contemplate it, it was uh, uh, Pope John Paul II who said that um, when you look at that image, uh, it's such a barbaric, such a brutal death, uh, and you can't but help link it to man's inhumanity to man uh, in the present. And uh, you can, as you're looking at that suffering, the, as it appears on the, on the shroud, uh, you you see written there um, things like human trafficking and uh, and wars and mayhem uh, and all that. So it, on the one hand, it is. It's a, it's a brutal, tragic image. But on the other, uh, it's also a, an image of love because it ties directly to the, the whole idea that uh, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And that Jesus willingly accepted this death, this horrifying, brutal death for us. And that is, again, that is, it's just mind-blowing when you, when you look at it and you see it there. Uh, the, uh, just the power of that image. And the face is so serene. That's the other thing. Mm. Uh, you know, in the, despite all of this brutality, the face is serene. Uh, it's kind of like those last words. It is finished. Yep. Yeah. How true. And and you are so right. You know, there's um when I look at it, uh, you know, you see the suffering and like you said, the inhumanity of man to other men. And then on the other hand, you say, wow, this is this is the witness of the most important event in Christianity, and it's the resurrection. And for me, it's also the most. You know, it's the most. It's the most, uh, the, the worst thing possible, and then it's the absolute best thing possible. Mm -hmm. And and that, I think you're right, that, that message that comes out of that when, you, when you're looking at the shroud is, is just phenomenal. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, uh, so which, so which uh, element of the uh, exhibit do you uh, like the best? Where do you, <laughs> not, maybe not like the best, but uh, found this being the most interesting? Well, um, it's 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 definitely my bias as an historian uh, and doing provenance research and looking at the human stories and all. I found uh, in in researching the 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 history of the shroud is is really where I uh, 
was was drawn into the story uh, right from the right from the earliest documents the the documents from 1389 that uh, when you put them all together uh, we I I t- translated the the Latin and the old French documents and it tells this very strange story uh, of how uh, in the summer of 1389 right about the time when there's finally a break in the uh, hundred years war that'll go on and until the 15th century um, that uh, the Bishop of Troyes comes to the king of uh, France and says uh, that there's a problem in Luray, that uh, they are displaying this cloth and they're displaying it in such a way that uh, that the clergy give the uh, people the impression that this is definitely genuine. And he said, but it's only a painting. And uh, so the king, to mollify the bishop, uh, writes to his bailiff in Troyes and uh, requests that he go and he sees the shroud. And we have this report from the bailiff that it did not go according to plan. And as I, uh, as I said the, uh, the other night, it's like something out of Monty Python. That uh, literally uh, the bailiff goes there the clergy are waiting for him uh, and they outfox him and they just keep giving him a changing story. Well, you can see it if you go outside. Well, I'm not going to, I have to seize it. Well, you can't seize it. Why? Well, it's locked up. And, you know, no, you know, uh, they said, well, get the key. He said, well, we don't have the key. Uh, well, where's the key? And, uh, you've got all of these crazy elements. And then the uh, procurator, we call him the lawyer, so we don't have to explain what a procurator is. But the procurator of the bishop comes and he increases the pressure on the clergy. And they, there's this whole go around. And then all of a sudden, up, oh, it's it's dinner time. And so they stop <laughs> and and they go away. And um, then what they do is uh, after dinner, they come back and the argument picks up and goes absolutely as fruitlessly uh, from that point on. Now, we took all of we took all of this and boiled it down into a, uh, a script that's told in six spreads on what we call a magic book that uh, you really get a a sense of the story uh, as you turn the pages and there are sensors embedded in the pages uh, that are read by the projector and read into the computer so that uh, when you turn the page, the scene shifts and you get to a different uh, a, a different part of the story. Uh, and everything is coming from the documents, with one exception. Um, because they go off and eat, I uh, was curious what they ate. And I came across a uh, French cookbook from uh, 1393, so four years later, and it had banquet menus. And so mm-hmm. I chose the most outlandish banquet and uh, and chose all the food that I thought would make uh, kids my grandson's age go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, had that in there. And uh, that's the only thing that really doesn't come from the documents of the, uh, the shroud itself, but it's it's contemporary. Yeah. And uh, so we have this this magic book as as a way to to tell this very strange story. Um, with with that, uh, it's the human element that I'm drawn to. And there's so many interesting stories uh, we broke we broke the uh, the known history of the shroud into the three known owners: uh, the Deshani family from uh, 
Luray, France, uh, the House of Savoy, who had it the longest, and and now the popes. And uh, by simplifying it and looking at it that way, there were themes that came up as to how the different owners used it. Uh, I think most striking, uh, the House of Savoy, uh, that they used it as the dynastic symbol and uh, ultimately used it to uh, show the people of uh, Turin that... Uh, they had divine favor mm. and you know so I, I it's it's a bit of a stretch but you know since victor emmanuel the second was a member of the of the house of savoy if you don't have this reinforcing of the house of savoy that the shroud brings uh you might not have a unified italy uh it's it's one of those things in uh in history a gross overstatement but uh I'm no longer teaching, so I don't get graded on that. <laughs> and, and who knows exactly what happened? Anyway, so. <laughs> That's right. But, but uh, yeah, but the whole story of the shroud it keeps it keeps coming back to um, outbreaks of plague and times of war, and. Um, the whole story of why it's in Turin. Uh, it was in Chambéry, France, which is where it was uh, in 1532 when the fire damaged it. Uh, it was tied up with a plague that hit the city of Milan and all the civil officials disappeared and uh, the archbishop, uh, Charles Borromeo, he, he took over, he ran the city, he tended the sick uh, and just kept everything going for two years. But he made this vow that if he survived and if the plague was lifted from Milan, he would walk to uh, give thanks in front of the shroud. And so if the, the Duke of Savoy, when he heard that, okay, Borromeo was coming, he moved it from uh, Chambray across the Alps to uh, Turin so that it would be there. And, uh, and Borromeo wouldn't have to go over the Alps on foot. Now, fast forward to the, the present uh, in 2020 and uh, 2021 on Holy Saturday, there have been live streamed virtual prayer services uh, in the presence of the Shroud with the Archbishop of uh, Turin leading it. And what they've done is they uh, have prayed, talked about different parts of the Shroud and the significance of the marks, and then interviewed uh, nurses and doctors and COVID survivors, uh, youth leaders, teachers, all, to, all discussing the terrible impact of COVID. And I find it uh, amazing that it, historically, where did, where did COVID first appear outside of China? It was in Borromeo's old archdiocese of Milan in Northern Italy. And so once again, it, it seems to come back to this, um, that in a time of plague, uh, people turn to the shroud and the meaning uh, behind the shroud uh, for uh, for comfort. Yeah, yeah, no, and it is a, uh, interesting how the uh, you know that that first uh, you know case started in Milan, and and then that's where Borromeo you know was fighting the plague and and uh, and things like that. It just absolutely fascinating. I and I. I get a kick out of reading history too. I don't know, maybe there's something wrong with me, but uh, I, <laughs> I got interested in the shroud with uh, one of Ian Wilson's book, uh, books mm. called uh, The Blood in the Shroud. And and uh, and it's just fascinating 
uh, you know, when you have the documented history from the, uh, the you know, the mid 1300s, and then you kind of have the undocumented, but, um, you know, pieces that you can put together kind of as circumstantial evidence to say, how did it get all the way from Golgotha, Jerusalem, up to uh, Constantinople, and then uh, and then up to uh, Lyrae, Lyrae, France. So, yeah, it's uh, the uh, hypothetical uh, journey is uh, something that we uh, we actually uh, uh, address as well. Uh, that uh, looking at how it might have how it might have made its way from Jerusalem via Edessa to uh, Constantinople, and then with the Fourth Crusade coming to France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, uh, you know, there's a handful of other uh, theories out there. I kind of uh, believe that the Edessa uh, to Constantinople and then over to Lyrae, France is probably the, you know, the one. But, you know, it, and, and, you know, I don't think we'll ever know. I, I don't think no. <laughs> uh, it'll be possible, even if you came up with a book you know, written on parchment, having killed all those, <laughs> all those sheep, uh, you know, that, that actually says that I was the one that took it, you know, it, we, we may or may not even believe it, so. Well, I would caution you about that because there was the incident of the gospel of Jesus' wife. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, very good. That's very good. Um, all right, well, uh, we're coming uh, down to a close, but why don't you tell us about what the mission of the Museum of the Bible is? Well, uh, simply put, uh, we believe that um, we want all people to engage with the transformative power of the Bible. And uh, the way in which we approach this is to uh, have our permanent exhibits, which are on three separate floors, uh, address different aspects of this. So uh, on our second floor, we talk about the impact of the Bible, uh, both on America and uh, on the world. And uh, the third floor, we, as, as so many people have said, uh, we, we realize that there's a certain amount of Bible illiteracy out there that uh, people just don't know the stories. And uh, so we have uh, the stories of the Bible are addressed there. We have uh, the uh, Hebrew Bible uh, walkthrough, which is an award-winning exhibit uh, to explain uh, the stories in the uh, Old, Old Testament so that people get that uh, narrative. Uh, and then we have uh, a New Testament theater that talks about uh, the Gospels. But we also have an area there with uh, the uh, world of Jesus of Nazareth, which is a recreation of what a village in the Galilee might have looked like uh, in the first century. And we have uh, living history interpreters there in costume uh, who stay in character the whole time, uh, which, is, which is fun. Uh, and then on the fourth floor, we deal with the transmission of the text of the Bible to show the, how this text has uh, traveled uh, through time and space in uh, many different uh, formats from uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, up to uh, an app on your phone and uh, different languages, translations and all. We address the whole uh, issue of uh, translations and all. So that's that's the mission uh and how we approach it uh the way that the shroud of turin exhibit actually fits into that is that we look at it in terms of uh, the impact of the bible 
Um, ever since it first appeared in Luray uh, in the 1300s, millions of people have come to see it. Uh, millions of people, just almost 10 million in the 21st century alone. Uh, and it, it, people come there. And why are they coming there? Well, it's because of the stories of the Bible. Uh, Pope uh, John Paul II famously called the Shroud a mirror of the gospel. And how does it mirror that? It, uh, we have another interactive where it's a touch table, where uh, we have sensors embedded so that people who are uh, blind or are sight impaired, they can run their hands over the, over the table and feel the image and so thus see it through a uh, sense of touch. But when their hand strikes one of the sensors that's linked to a gospel passage, then they hear the actual, uh, the, the word itself. And I've got 25 different, uh, we've got 25 different um, uh, passages recanting, uh, recounting different parts of the uh, of the passion narrative. We also have on that uh, same table. We've also got other sensors that uh, will tell you what this burn mark is, or what that watermark is, or this is this is where the radiocarbon sample was taken, uh, so that people get a full experience of it. So the people see are interacting with the stories of the Bible uh, and seeing the impact of the Bible. Yeah, I really like the uh, that touch sensitive uh, thing for the uh, not only for the blind, but also for the rest of us. And um, and to me, you know, I also thought about, uh, you know, Pope John Paul's uh, saying that the shroud mirrors the Gospels and then you can, you know, right there, you can actually feel how it mirrors the Gospels with uh, with what's in there. And not only the physical stuff with the uh, the wounds and things like that, but also the message that, you know, here he is, he gave his life uh, for us so that we would be saved. So uh, really just phenomenal. Well, Brian, thank you uh, so much. Uh, you've been you've been awesome. I really appreciate it. And thank you for participating. And, uh, you know, I, I think you've you've helped certainly helped me and hopefully others as they listen to this and uh, understand more about the shroud. And and I hope as well that they uh, are able to visit the shroud and uh, the shroud exhibit at the Museum of the Bible. And uh, definitely, uh, if you get a chance for everyone that, that is listening to this is go to the Museum of the Bible. It is absolutely worth it. I've been there maybe five times multiple hours each and i still have not seen everything uh for more information <laughs> exactly that's true <laughs> it, it is true it's, i just... work here and i haven't seen everything <laughs> <laughs> and even worse than that it changes you know you bring in new things so uh yeah fantastic but anyway uh, for more information on museum of the bible go to museumofthebible.org museumofthebible.org and there you can find out about what's there what's going on what are the events and also you can buy your tickets there so you can uh, get ready and go. And otherwise, uh, please stay tuned uh, for more uh, videos on uh, this series on the backstory of the Shroud of Turin. And uh, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. Brian, thank you so much. Guy, thank you so much. This has been an awful lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we've got the uh, maroon thing going together in Germany as well. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Brian. <laughs>